Welcome to the School of Unlearning. I'm your host, Elisa Haggerty. I've always believed in the power of questions. They create a gap, a space where we pause and begin to challenge the world around us. Without questions, we're stuck in the trance of life, a life given to us versus one created with agency. Your journey to rethink and unlearn the norms no longer serving you begins now. Hey, everybody. Today, we welcome on the podcast uh, my twin sister, Catherine Haggerty. Today is actually our birthday, St. Patrick's Day. Shout out to mom and dad for having us come into the world on such a special day. Um, and Catherine, today is our guest, and it's an incredible episode, a little bit different tone than maybe you're used to, but it's in a, such a cool way because you get to meet someone who I obviously have grown up with my entire life. And we are now um, sharing stories of how we've both become professionals and entrepreneurs and people who are hell-bent on questioning the status quo. So in this podcast, you're going to learn about Catherine's art career, where it really began as a young child, how it moved through high school and college, and these really pivotal moments where she decided to really gut check uh, where she was putting her time and her energy and to surround herself with people who were supportive of her, who believed in her. And um, we come to a cool part in the podcast where she tells us about the pivotal moment where she realizes she came into the art world to form community. And she did that with her co-founder of the Crick Club, Hillary Doyle. And she talks about that in the podcast and her new program, the Canopy Program. And um, it's really just sort of like an exhale. It's a really fun personal interview. I think you're going to love it. And um, please share it with friends and family. Um, I know I'll be sharing it with my family as they get to know us even in a different light. But let me tell you about Catherine's professional career because it's impressive to say the least. Um, Catherine is an artist based in Brooklyn, New York. Um, her paintings and curatorial work have been reviewed and featured in over 15 um, global and nationally recognized publications, including Bomb Magazine, Artnet, Hyperallergenic, and Two Coats of Paint, and Brooklyn Magazine. Oh, and the New York Times. <laughs> Catherine has been a visiting artist and critic at institutions like Rutgers, um, RISD, University of Oregon, Denison University, Brooklyn College, SUNY Purchase, Penn State, Boston University. She's had solo and two-person exhibitions, which include United, or Untitled Miami, and Lauren Gallery in LA, Geary Contemporary, um, and this Friday, next Friday in Brooklyn, and dozens of other shows where her work has been featured and celebrated as she's been building not only a, a local but a global community of incredible minds who appreciate storytelling in the form of art. Catherine has also earned her MFA from Mason Gross Rutgers University in 2011, and she's an adjunct professor at the School of Visual Arts, SVA, and is again the co-founder and executive director of New York City Crick Club and the Canopy Program. It's been an honor to have Catherine on the podcast, to be her first friend in life, and to be her biggest fan. So enjoy what you hear, and thanks for tuning in. Hey, Kat. Welcome to the School of Unlearning, my twin sister. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you, Elisa. I'm really excited to chat with you today. So, Kat, we've known each other now for... 38 years. Our birthday's coming up. Actually, the day that this is being released, March 17th, is our birthday. So shout out to mom and dad for <laughs> giving birth to us and raising us. And it's a really special day for me just as a person and also, you know, uh, running a podcast and being able to release a conversation with you, one that is like personal, it's going to be professional. Um, and we're going to get to cover topics that maybe you don't get to talk about on other podcasts. And certainly my guests are going to be excited to 
learn about you and learn from you. Um, your body of work, like I said, in the introduction is impressive. Um, you've been showing all around the world. You've, you're an established artist in New York city and beyond and globally, and you're also an art curator and you're an entrepreneur. So really badass story. Um, I know a lot of this about you, but I don't know, for the audience and for even the people who've been following you for years, I'd like for you to kind of kick us off with when you were growing up, when did you first start falling in love with making things? Um, so I think that my experience with art what happened before I really knew what art was. And so one of the first things I remember doing was sneaking into the garage and making like kind of trash and recycling sculptures by myself, um, more like just assembling objects and imagining what they could be. This is something probably a lot of kids do. It's not necessarily like incredibly unique, but um, I do remember thinking that that was making and that that was important and that I had a desire to do it and I didn't know what it meant. So I kind of made trash sculptures in the beginning. And, um, you know, we didn't have a ton of art classes growing up or I didn't have a ton of experience with like painting um, despite a few like, you know, maybe school events. Um, so I felt like building and using my hands was the first thing. And now that I look back on it, I can understand mostly why, because we grew up in a really, really big family and space and privacy was limited. And I found a nook of the house that I could occasionally use. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I also, and I know you did and everyone else saw our dad come home from work and scutter off to the garage sometimes to maybe fuss with cabinets or fix something. And um, I remember distinctly once him showing me how to properly clean a paintbrush and, you know, mm -hmm. paint paint the house not necessarily a painting but I still nonetheless thought that it was kind of magical and I think that those are reasons that I didn't know then but now I can look back clearly and say like those were aspects of why I was really interested in in making things and using my hands that's a really beautiful memory that you share it sounds like it's a bit of a core memory um I don't think it's one that you had shared with me yet but um yeah, dad would come home and he would go home and tinker. He would go into the garage and build things and make things, whether it was like a cat, um, you know, house with a cardboard box to keep the cat safe, or he was, you know, to your point, refinishing the cabinets. Um, you know, I it, obviously we both born on the same day, grew up together. We both love sports and climbing trees and being out in the world with our moving our hands and bodies. But what do you think was different for you about making things versus like using your body in sports and running? Like what, what was the distinction? Cause they are different. And I, for example, never really gravitated towards like making things in art um, as a kid, but um, I know that you did. So I'd love to know, how do you see them as, as different or complementary? Um, I see them as really complementary. Um, and I, you know, depending on the sport, um, it, it can be a very solitary experience, um, but but mostly to be good at anything, it's a solitary experience because you have to put in a lot of work. So I, I do think that like the relationships between sports and the arts are vast. And I, in my younger years, like many people do in their younger years, can't see the full picture and think that they are either one or the either. Mm -hmm. And 
a very common narrative you'll hear in teaching or in criticism or conversations that like someone thought that they were just not good at art or something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, I always felt like a little bit of a devil's advocate and I was really determined to be good at whatever I was trying to do. Um, and so I, I found it interesting to think about ways I could make myself different, but also follow what my hands wanted to do, what like my vision was. And I, I had one when I was little, I just didn't have language for it. And I, I remember you were and are very athletic and I, I am too. And, you know, but compared to you, I was always a little bit less like fast or strong or something. Um, although I was still really good for, for what it's worth, but you know, you were just exceptional. And I remember thinking like, wow, that's amazing. I'm going to be as good as Lisa. But I also felt like there was something else I could offer. And I felt like maybe being an artist was like a way to navigate a little bit of my own narrative, but also mm -hmm. I really, I have grown to love both athletics and art so deeply. And I see them as so important to my person, my research, my thinking, my health, um, and, and there's just a long history of like artists and creative people that, um, that, that are interested and, and have like really committed to, um, athletics in different ways. And so, um, mm -hmm. I now don't see them as separate, but of right. course, as all young kids do, right. you don't understand the connections, but I now I'm like very, very clear on it all. Um, that's a really beautiful point. I think also too, as young people, we get really boxed in. I mean, sometimes by ourselves and of course what society tells us, family tells us, I mean, just the, the words like, oh, you're the athletic one or you're the academic one, or, I mean, it's just utter bullshit. And it's really tiring because the more you grow up, the more you're like, wow, I am ever, I could be everything. And it's all complimentary, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's something that I, and I know you and I have chatted about this, but when I have a kid one day, um, I, or child, I want to be, it's not like I want to be super careful in the way that I'm never going to like mess yeah. up, but I'm really, really alerted to these statements of like, well, she's the artist or something. And mm -hmm. like, because it's not that she's not the artist, right. Mm -hmm. But, but a kid will internalize language in a way that, you know, even if the person doesn't mean anything by it, they mm -hmm. might just I'm only an artist, depending on like how they're feeling that day or the kid, their sibling might be like, well, I guess I'm not. And mm -hmm. that's good. But I think it's just really important how we use language, especially with kids growing up and saying like, you know, and also too, with art was a really common misnomer is that people say things like, well, she's so good at drawing or he's so good at drawing, but mm -hmm. she, you know, the other one doesn't like to do it, but art is so vast. Art is building, art is, mm -hmm. art is singing, art is writing. And so I just think in general, like the more broad and positive you can just be about the the way that young people um, experience the world, the better possibility that they understand that there's a growth mindset, that there's a big world out there. Mm -hmm. um, I know you and I both, I didn't think I was terribly intelligent until like, not that I think I am terribly intelligent, but I know that I'm a smart person and I'm capable but I thought for many years I wasn't because I was so good at athletics. And there was just comments here and there about like, oh, you're not really good at school. It's not your thing. And that reinforced the internal narrative. So those things shouldn't be said. People should be more careful. And I think like also we have an obligation as people to like work through those things and figure mm -hmm. out. What happens. But um, yeah, it took me a long time to even think that I was smart. And I remember being shocked by it in college that I like could do really well in school. And it 
what a shame that is that, that I couldn't believe in myself in high school for many reasons, you know, that mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. like, you yeah. know, it, it just, um, how we grow up is, is obviously like a, a huge part of all of our individual experiences, but, but a lot of times, um, language and compartmentalization can make us feel like we are only good at one thing. And it, it takes yeah. a, lot, a lot of years to unlearn that you are, you are in fact, um, very complicated and vast. So vast. I think that's a beautiful word that we are vast. I think we contain multitudes. And one of the most powerful things you've taught me, especially in the last like five years is just remember one time I came to you and I was like going through some stuff with a relationship, feeling really sad or something. And you were like, Hey, do a drawing every day. And I was like, Catherine, I don't really, I'm not an artist. I don't draw. I, I, I like to make food. I like to, you know, hike. I like to, um, you know, write, um, I'm a coach. I'm not really an artist. And you were like, just draw one thing a day. I remember for 365 days, I drew an image every day. And I remember thinking, I never knew I was going to come to the page. It was the most beautiful gift to be what 34 at the time. And to finally be nudged to just pick up the pen and draw something. And that's a gift that you gave me that maybe if someone else, and I don't really have a lot of people saying stuff like that to me. So I just remember feeling really grateful. And it was me unlearning that I could be a bit of an artist. Absolutely. I could draw things. I could create something that I never thought existed. I remember drawing once and I was drawing and all of a sudden the lines became a dragon and all of a sudden the dragon was eating blueberries. And I was like, cool. (laughs) I never thought this morning I was going to create a creature that was a flying dragon eating blueberries. And it sounds silly, but it brought life and joy to me and it brought vast open energy to me. And I thought, wow, like we do contain more than we realize. And so again, thank you to you for for being that voice of like, everybody actually is an artist and we actually all can do things. That's profound. Well, you're welcome, but really thank you. I mean, you always prompt me in great ways to challenge the way I operate or to be more open and all of these great things. And I I love that about our friendship. Um, But I mean, you're a great drawer. I I think like, and I've I've become like, as I've matured, gotten older, I've just, I'm so much more um, empathetic and compassionate towards this conversation that we're having, which is to say like, that you like, you can be a lot of things and that, you know, the joy of creativity is not about, of course, like there are market standards of success and there's ways that we can operationalize and show that we are like doing well, but there's also just the fact that art has existed for ever and has existed in many different realms and has provided sustenance and, um, you know, function and uh, joy and culture to to millions and millions of people from the beginning of time. And it, and this idea of being good at something as if it, that as if that is the reason to do a thing, mm-hmm. really, really something I'm becoming more like, well, like, you know, if, if you want to get down a, you know, pen and paper or like, you know, sing or do something, I think like, I think those things are just important to remind yourself, like you are not uh, less than you, that you're capable. Yeah. And also that you don't have to know everything to do something. Yeah. You just said two really, really important things I want to pronounce that you don't have to be good at something, by the way, what is good anyway? Like it's super subjective. You get to define what good is and actually, and you also don't have to know everything to begin. And I think that's a really important, you know, we can call it growth mindset, but also it's just wisdom. Like when we were young, we were pigeonholed maybe into being only an athlete or only this or not this, not that. And again, our, our experience is not unique. Every person has gone through some variation of that, but we, at some point were like, 
actually I, I can do many things, but I want to go back to some moments in childhood and high school years where you were developing two pathways, not just two, but many, but two very obvious pathways, pursuits and pursuit in sports and running and basketball early years. It was also softball too, right? We played all the sports. We just wanted to throw things and run really fast. And you also were beginning to really build momentum in the world of art and creating things, taking some art classes. Tell us about some of the pivotal moments, and maybe it was high school or college, where you started to really, really self-advocate for what you really wanted to do with your time in your life. I remember a few moments, but I want to know if you have any that come to you that really help you know, define your, your pivot into where you put your attention. Um, I guess like the most clear and kind of ridiculous story is when I was a sophomore in college, um, I was in a basketball practice at Bloomsburg University where I was playing to state school in Pennsylvania. And I was a psychology major and a fine arts major. So I was a double major and I was playing on the college basketball team. And that was like my life's dream is to play college basketball like our dad did and like you did. Um, and I did. Um but um, I remember in practice getting thrown out because I dropped a ball in a drill called the Mike and drill, or sometimes it's called the Superman drill. It's a footwork drill. And I just dropped the ball. And my coach, who was a little bit mentally unstable and kind of, you know, erratic, uh, for some reason found that very annoying, me of all people, and like kicked me out of practice. And I remember thinking, just so shocked because I'm a really good worker and I don't have an attitude, especially with like you know, coaches or leadership, or I'm, I'm very like, oh, absolutely. I got it. And I remember getting thrown out and then like walking into the locker room and thinking like, I, we were raised in a way in which I, you just, you just made things right. Like you either apologized or you kind of like, were like, oh, I'll be better next time. And I remember just thinking like, what the hell am I apologizing for? This crazy woman just threw me out of practice for dropping a ball. I was crying and hyperventilating. I didn't even play much on this team because many reasons, but mostly because I actually was just like a little bit too much in my head. I, I, I could outwork people and dribble people, but I, I never ended up playing too much in games because of those reasons. And I remember thinking like, well, this is nuts. And I'm in the middle of Pennsylvania and all I want to do is have some culture. So I went to the library the next day and I looked up like art schools abroad and I worked really hard for a semester to get a little mini portfolio. And this was back in the day when you had like slides, mm -hmm. like you photos of your work and then make them into physical slides and mail them to Temple University, Philadelphia to go to their Rome study abroad program. And when I got in, I went and I was so excited and it changed my life because as soon as I entered that other world where it was really committed towards art, which is something I hadn't had the experience of, it was only athletics and like a few art classes. I then, I just saw that the world was so big and that my possibility of participation could be so much bigger than I thought it was. And there was funny people that like did arts. I didn't feel like an artist even. I felt like an outsider, but I still, I made friends and I have just so many memories of those experiences, like walking in Florence or in Rome with my friends at night and looking up and thinking like that there's a large world out there. And so I'm really grateful I got kicked out of practice and that I was like, you know what, I'm going to quit the team after the year ends and I'm going to do what I want. And I'm going to go to art school. And that was the first, that was like a really, really important first thing that happened to me. So uh, I'll never forget that. And I, I, I still need to go back to Rome to reminisce a little bit. That's an incredible story. I think just the way you tell it to is, is really sort of, it's a pivotal moment. It was a moment where you could have kept grinning and bearing it and staying on the team to play a few minutes and just like 
continue the dream, right? But you found another dream. And that's a really important thing that a lot of people don't get a chance to question their dreams and to pivot their dreams. They just kind of keep going, put their head down because they've set out to accomplish this thing like playing college basketball. But along the way, in the pursuit of your dream, you found others. And I think that's really, really cool. Um, and so tell us what happened after that as you went through college and then you went on to get your MFA at Rutgers University. Um, your love and your dedication to art and to creating um, only increased. Um, what were some other notable moments for you or milestones that allowed you to sink into that new dream? I like finished, you know, the art abroad program and thought like, I've got to figure out a way to be around more artists. And then I went to school for another two years, finished my degrees. I was a little bit um, of a little bit of a bookworm. I studied a lot. I didn't really go out a lot in college, actually. Um, I was really into doing well in school. I, um, I had some friends, but I didn't like come back from the Tyler School of Art having like this new art, big world and social media was different back then. So it wasn't like we all kept up with each other. But long story short, I finished college. I moved back to New Jersey. I, you know, ran some little half marathons with my friends. I got waitressing jobs and I started to think like, well, now what? And I thought, okay, I was a psychology major and a fine art major. I'll do like art therapy or I'll do this. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, I had no example of what it meant to be an artist. And so I really want to make the distinction that I don't feel like that necessarily limited me because that sounds like it's someone's fault. It's not. I didn't have any artists growing up, but I had people like our parents who loved us and what our parents did. I think that's remarkably great is they let us live our life and they didn't say things to me like, well, if you're going to be an artist, you're going to be poor. So like you should do this, this, and that. And it doesn't mean they probably weren't worried at some point, but they, they always championed hard work. They always championed persistent, you know, um, attitude and they always kind of champion like we'll do the next right thing and I am so grateful that I didn't grow up in my 20s with parents breathing down my neck about well you don't have a job job and you don't have money money and like I always paid for myself I always worked really hard I bought my own car I paid for my apartment uh, I showed that I was really independent and I'm really really grateful for that looking back I mean do I wish I had some more examples sure because it could have happened faster for me and it wouldn't have been so difficult, but I'm, I'm so grateful that they were open and it doesn't work for everyone, but it worked for me. And, and I think you as well, meaning like some people need more, you know, examples or time. Um, but I had this gut feeling that there was something special out there for me. And I do think it's actually because you and I growing up were like this little kind of spectacle. We were like these twins that were kind of good at stuff. We were really good at athletics and stuff. And I think I felt like this special, I felt like I was special, even though I didn't always feel so confident or beautiful or smart. I felt like I was destined to do something. And I, I think I can only thank our parents for making us feel like, like that we were really special. I remember a dad used to like say like, you're just so beautiful. And I just remember thinking mm. I had braces and a bowl cut and I, I would no boys liked me. And I just thought like, you're insane, man. But he really said it with, he meant like, it, you know, and then mom of course was so supportive and like, you know, in her own way, but like mom was also really supportive and really, um, you just, she, she just like, let us do it. And I think like, that's not the next thing that happened, but I, if I look back in my twenties, I'm just really grateful. I didn't get this yeah. peer pressure about like a career. And I had my own, like, I had my own sense of obligation. I've always had, like, I was like, I am not asking for anything for anyone. Right. I don't out. I will always pay for myself. 
No one will ever worry about me. I will be successful. I will not be a burden. Those were my like mental statements. I said for a year, I still say, because I, that's how I, you know, but um, I made art um, in my little studio in Morristown, New Jersey. I finally got accepted into some show in New York. I got a letter in the mail, which now you don't get. And it was like, you've been accepted to this little show. And I went to New York City with mom and dad and my two friends. And I showed my little painting in this big group show. And I thought, okay, I can do it. And then I thought, I'm going to go to grad school for art. And I applied to a few schools. I didn't get in. And then the next year I applied again and I got into Rutgers. And so when I was 27, about, or 26, I went to Rutgers for, for grad school. So, you know, it's interesting. It's probably the first time I've heard you talk about the, well, I've always known you had like an inner knowing of like, I'm meant for something. I'm meant for something, uh, whether it be grandiose or whatever, doesn't matter. But you had a sense of knowing that you were meant to do certain things on this planet. And that sense of drive has always been palpable to me. But you hit upon a few things. Um, this being able to take your time into becoming something. And this is a little bit pre Instagram. It is a little bit pre Facebook where you didn't have what we call mimetic models. You kind of just were out there putting the pieces together, following the breadcrumbs of like interest and like trying something out and interest and trying something out. And obviously like you built a foundation well enough that you said, okay, MFA is the way to go. So I think that's really incredible to just ease into your life. And I don't think now these days, and I'd love to hear your your opinions on this in a bit, but I don't know that people get a chance to ease into their life because there's so many models out there that they think they have to copy and be. And I think that's a really, so, sort of for us, I guess, maybe a blessing that we did grow up a bit in the pre-social media world because I don't know how I'd survive with all these, you open your phone and all of a sudden you're elsewhere and you're comparing. I mean, it's just immediate. Um, but you also yeah. hit a, oh, go ahead, say no. Oh, well, just, you know, I, yes, I think that that was a gift that I got to like, just kind of play around in my early twenties after school. And I didn't have Instagram or any social media form to show me anything. You know, there's always a good and a bad thing. I wish I had it. Cause I could have just maybe not taken me like 10 years or something after college to really get to a place of like consistency with my, my, my work, but also, um, I'm, I'm really grateful for that, that time that I was just a person who like worked really hard at my jobs and I made my art alone and I read books and I tried to figure it out. Um, and one thing I see, cause I teach at various levels is that I do see a lot of young artists. Um, there's a lot of fiscal stress in the fields of which people are choosing and predominantly in the creative fields like art, a lot of college kids and artists after are very worried about how to substantiate their success, either by being paid for their work consistently or something like this. And that is something that I didn't even think about for the longest time. And I have other thoughts on it, how I don't really think about it right now. But but I think that was such a gift because in college, when I teach a lot of college classes and it's good that they're concerned about money, I was clueless, but also they're really worried. Like, well, should I be an artist? Cause like, I heard you're poor. I'm like, well, that's one narrative, but that's a really small minded narrative. And also the creative fields is a giant, giant umbrella of which you could be good at many things. And most companies, corporations or entrepreneurs or people in the world need people that do a, a myriad of creative tasks mm-hmm. actually like kind of easier to employ and you usually have a multiple amazing set of skills 
And um, so it's like, those are things that I'm like, I'm really glad I didn't worry about stuff like that. I was just like really industrious um, because I do think that that can like limit people's decisions early on because they're like, well, I have to make a certain amount of money or I have to quantify my success with money. And those are things I never thought about. And I'm grateful that I didn't. Yeah. Um, You also hit upon mom and dad a little bit. And you talked about some of the ways that they showed up for you and dad just having a firm belief in both of us, but in you and your work and just, you know, you, you kind of mentioned having like braces and like a bowl cut and feeling like the awkward preteen years. And, you know, I remember getting letters from him saying, I believe in you and the oak tree will be there and keep, keep forging forward. And I think about how lucky we were to, to have that as a, as one of our role models. Mom was also a huge role model for us. And I want to give a shout out to mom too, because one of the things she did for both of us was I remember once coming in from playing outside and I said something like, you know, the boys didn't choose me on a team or the boys are playing. And she looked at me and she's like, so what? Go play. Like there, there wasn't a sense of gender division for me anyway, in the way, like very early on, there wasn't, I just thought I was going to be in the NBA. I thought I would play with the boys forever. I didn't really know. And I think part of that was because mom was just like, go play, go climb trees, go throw things. And I think that's a powerful role model for me. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on just moments in life where you felt empowered and just, um, you felt more like yourself around some of the things that, you know, our parents did or said to you. Well, I think, you know, our mom is really strong. And I think I always saw, um, our mom as someone that held things together. And I know dad felt the same way. Um, dad was very emotive. He's very verbal. He would tell you and write to you. Mom was a little less so, is a little less so, but is still very generous and sweet, like incredibly kind. Um, she just had her own way of saying things. And so, but she had a really good grit to her. And I saw that grit happen with mom solving problems for us, with mom, you know, being really adamant about women doing stuff, you know, like Mm -hmm. she put Anne in gymnastics and really like helped her feel like she could be strong and athletic, which she is, or like helped both of us feel like we could be really great runners and went to all of our meets and read the New York times underneath a tree alone and watched everyone run, you know, like she did these funny, sweet, um, enduring gestures of commitment. And that showed me that I was worth something. And I think that was as important as all of the poetry and sweetness that our dad gave us was that, that she as a woman showed me sincere grit and work ethic and this sort of like, you know, follow the rules, do the right thing. And Mm. you know what, you can do that. Like she's, you know, mom's really, um, a really wonderful example of what it means to also work through things, even though, you know, she did different things than dad, um, but she did things. So I don't know. I think we just were really lucky that we had um, a lot of those building blocks um, and no one told me that I could be an artist, but no one told me I couldn't. And I think that that was as important. Um, It wasn't, you can, or you can, it was like, yeah, just do the next right thing and work hard. And that left it open for me to find the thing on my own timeline. And that was really important. Um, so yeah. very, very grateful. <clears throat> That's a big gift to have that. Um, and, and I know you had also many different people, especially through your twenties and early thirties, as you broke into the art scene in New Jersey, New York, um, and beyond many key influences. I'd like you to share a little bit about some of the most influential, let's say mentors or people in the field of art or even entrepreneurship that have helped, um, you know, 
guide you and shape you and inspire you in ways that you maybe didn't have in your early 20s? I mean, I really didn't go to art school until I went to graduate school. And so the, my first encounter with serious artists was at 27 years old at Rutgers. So I didn't have anybody else. I mean, it was just makeshift. So when I met my best friend, Lee Von Rude, who's a great artist now in LA. Shout and out to Lee. She's great. She's just like the best. And I just, I was alerted to this amazing person who grew up on a farm in Wisconsin and was like hell bent on making their paintings and, and tapestries and textiles and just lived a really cool life. And um, she really helped me become a, more of an artist and feel like more uh, okay to do the things that I wanted to do. Um, you know, I had good, some good mentors in um, graduate school, Julie Langsam or Hanalina Rogberg come to mind. Both of them are both amazing uh, painters and artists, but they're also female mo role models that I didn't have that many of in undergrad for art classes. Um, so those were, you know, those were some people during that time that were really important to me. Um, and when I finished school at graduate school, I had a, a rocky few years. And I remember I got into this residency called the Vermont Studio Center. Mm -hmm. And um, this is kind of another huge pivotal point in my life that I that it would be remiss not to mention but I was engaged to a guy who, who wasn't so nice um all the time and was you know worried about my fiscal responsibilities being an artist and uh basically and I remember thinking like oh god like I just finished graduate school at 29 and then I went and got another master's in art education so that I could be really equipped to work and take care of myself again like doing all the right things and I still was getting this doubt from this person that I cared about. And I got into the Vermont Studio Center and I got a grant to go, which was great. So it's a residency in Vermont. You get to go make your art. And I just needed this break. It was a year after grad school. I moved to Philly because of this relationship. I didn't have that many art friends in Philly. They all had gone to New York or LA. I was feeling bummed out. Um, I was scrapping by and I got in this residency and I opened this letter and it said, congratulations, you're accepted. I just thought this was so big. And it said like, you have a balance of like $800, you know, we're covering most of your stuff, but there's like a small balance and that's pretty normal. And I remember, I remember he just looked at me and said, you think I'm going to pay for that? And I just lost it. And I also knew that that was going to be the narrative for the rest of my life. And I crumpled up that letter and I threw my textbook on the floor because I was, again, finishing like another grad degree to make sure I had two masters so I could always teach and provide for myself. Don't worry. And I threw it on the floor. I took my ring off and I chucked it at him. And essentially, a few months later, I left for good. I went to the Vermont Studio Center and mm -hmm. I, my life changed again. And it really changed from what I had thought it was going to be during that period and I took a huge chance, even though it was obvious maybe that I should have left, but it really felt hard. But I just knew that my life was going to be a woman that had to answer to a man asking me about if I was going to be able to pay for it. And I thought, oh, no, 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 no one is ever going to tell me that I can't do a thing. And no one's ever going to make me feel bad about doing the thing that I want. And what, of course, a real partner would do would say, congratulations and Let's make sure you can get this time. And that was a really hard two years. But what it instilled in me is this immense commitment again, as if I needed more, but I needed more. And this fortitude that no one was going to have to 
ever hold money over my head or employment or stability. And that is something that I still like work really hard to be, you know, in my own um, way responsible for both me and my family, but not answering to someone in that kind of way. And I think <clears throat> that was hard, but it made me even more of who I am. And so that's what um, that's an incredible pivotal moment. I'm so happy you mentioned that. And I'm so happy you threw the ring and you left because he never deserved someone as capable and as hardworking as you. And I just think it, it's interesting. And I don't, uh, I don't know. I don't know everything from maybe we should send our children to relationship school in young ways and young age and just teach them how to be kind and supportive. But nevertheless, that moment happened and your work ethic, your integrity, your financial capacity were questioned. And you said, no, thanks. No, 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 no. That's not going to be my life. And I think that is a sense of self-advocacy. And that's a defining moment in your career where you had this visceral bodily response where you're like, oh, no, no, no. And I, I again, I applaud you for it. And I'm happy you you made the choice to take care of yourself and to leave that. Um, and I can see, you know, and I think probably our listeners are seeing very clearly these pivotal moments, how they've defined your growth, your becoming into someone who is self-sufficient, self-made, and also really keen to support community too, and make sure that other people have advocacy. Yeah. And I think, and thank you for saying that and seeing that. And I think that these are the things in the last year I've been thinking about more full circle is that um, in relation to my, my job, which is to be a mentor, a critic, a teacher, and an artist, I see it all as very important. And I think that the project that I've co-founded and that I direct and run is actually a product of a lot of years of like either trauma or like trying so hard to get into a world, the art world that I didn't, it's like I had access, but I didn't. Mm -hmm. And I fought, I fought so hard to be a part of it. Um, I lived in my studio illegally. I rented tiny bedrooms. I always bartended midweek. I always had a full-time job. I always found ways to make it happen for a good decade that, and I think it was great. Like I had lived a great life, but I also know it was so hard. And I remember just thinking like, if I can do something to help this be more accessible and easier for other people to either enter or manage, that's going to be part of my life's work because man, I wish at 26, I had a group I could go to and take a class and like meet someone and not have it feel so tenuous mm -hmm. and not everyone can go to grad school and all of these other topics we can mm -hmm. talk about later, but I think actually all of these moments made me feel really, really full picture about where I am because I think that like these are human concerns that everyone deals with in any job that they might have. It could be writing, it could be, you know, statistics, it could be psychology. Um, everyone's trying to figure out how to enter worlds. And I think that's actually be become one of the most, th the things I'm most passionate about is sustainability, um, accessibility, um, how to persist throughout these experiences. And um, as much as I love my art and I want to talk about that, I, I think that those are the things that are um, universal. Driving forces for you, for sure. You know, for the audience listening, your audience knows mostly all about it, but my audience doesn't. And maybe there's new listeners here today. You go through the path, you go to the MFA, you start to get momentum, some community. You, after years and years of just putting in the work to create, to go to your studio on a Tuesday night, on Friday night and just create, you begin to produce art that is starting to be shown in shows. 
solo shows, two-person shows, exhibitions all over the world. And I remember just as the years go by, right, I'm probably early 30s, mid 30s, now we're in our late 30s, getting text messages from you saying like, I'm in a new show, I'm in a new show. And I always knew it was a big deal, right? Because art doesn't just get shown easily. It's definitely selected and there's a curation process and it should be. Um, and as the years went on, I started to be like, wow, Catherine's just in shows all the time. Like this is this is so cool to see because, you know, in your 20s, it was like an exploration into this creative endeavor and this expansion that you were experiencing. Um, and I'd like you to take us through that moment where you start to say you have some individual success, some sense of confidence in your work. It's exploring, it's evolving and talk about that. But then also, as you say, I'm going to solve for the thing that I most needed and I'm going to start a company called the Crick Club. I know you did it with your co-founder, Hillary. Um, so walk us through that transition, because that was a really pivotal moment where, again, you solve for the thing that you did not have in your 20s. Yeah. So another pivotal thing is that 2016 or so, um, I was invited to be a co-director of Ortega E. Gasset Projects, which is an artist-run gallery in Gowanus, Brooklyn. And I was invited to be a part of it because I was asked to donate something to a benefit, like a work on paper. And I remember I didn't have a ton of friends and I went to the opening alone and I thought, and there was some guy, Danny, who I know now was trying to bartend and help them out. And I didn't know anyone. So I figured I'll help people out. So I went to that opening alone, got up the will on the train. I was living in Jersey city, took two, two trains over and I showed up and I helped pour wine that night. And I was just a hustler. I helped them solve problems. Cause I was just like, it looks like they need some help. So I'll help them. And I was lonely anyway. So it was great. And then like a few months later, they were like, we like loved your ingenuity and like the way you helped us. And we didn't even like really know you that well, but that was so like great. So I was a part of this artist ring gallery for three years. And that also really taught me a lot. It taught me to care more about other people. It taught me to not worry about if I'm showing. And then subsequently it somehow gave me more opportunities to show my work. Um, but it was a curatorial project and it still goes on today and it's fantastic. And I learned a lot from it. And that was another huge education in my life was to help other people in order to also be involved so that I didn't sit back and say, oh, I just wish I was famous or that I made so much money from art. I was like, no, I got an education in um, values and art and art history and politics and writing by participating, by actually volunteering my time for the years. And so that really helped me form a community first and foremost. And so I wouldn't really be anywhere without you know, those friends who I still love and, and, and hang out with inviting me to be a part of their project, this nonprofit. Um, mm -hmm. And because of that, I met some friends and I was started showing a little bit more and that's how it works. You know, you, you participate, you're around, it is either proximity bias or it's that your work is good, but it's, it is how life works, you know, being present matters. So um, I willed my way into this world and into this art world. I was still living in Jersey city New Jersey teaching middle school art. And I, by the you know, good grace of God, got let go of my job a year before tenure kicked in. And it was great. I mean, at first I was a little upset because it was a little upsetting, but then I was like, oh, well, this is great. I didn't want to actually do this forever. So I remember I moved around and um I found my way to Brooklyn. And um basically, like because of all of those experiences, I had started to become more dedicated in the, the heart of what what I consider painting, which is in, in New York. Um, and so I went to a party one day and I 
uh, met this uh, girl named Hillary Doyle, who was at this like lady painter artist party. It was a social gathering and we knew each other. And she said, what are you doing? I said, I'm bartending in the West Village. I, I used to teach kids, but now I'm not. And I'm teaching in college and teaching. Mm. And she goes, well, I need help co-teaching this class together at this Abrams Art Center. It's called like, it's called like, it's a good crick class. It's called like New York City Crick Club, but it's, you know, it wasn't like a big thing yet. She had just run this one class. But um, she said, do you want to co-teach it with me? Because she was teaching up at RISD and, and commuting. And she said, I just need help. We can alternate classes. And I said, sure. So in 2017, Hillary and I co-taught a class at the Abrams Art Center of 18 people. And we had a great time. And we threw them a little like two-night opening at the Abrams Art Center. Everyone put up their art. We like drew a little gallery map. It was very DIY. It was nothing fancy. And we sat back and we said, why don't we do this together? And then why don't we not do it at the Abrams Art Center? Let's do it on our own because it just, it wasn't worth it fiscally. Like what we, you know, it, it was a very low cost thing, but we just ended up feeling like, well, we could just do this on our own. So in, in one year from 2017 in the fall to the spring, launched the New York City Crit Club to three classes, then to four, then to five, then to six, then to seven. And then by 2020, we were running six or seven in-person classes. Um, with amazing faculty based in New York. And the classes were um, all about critique and dialogue and some became about writing and professional practices. And then in 2020, the pandemic happened and obviously we went online because everyone had to. And that forever changed the scope of the project and the project's reach. So I, I can obviously speak about it more, but that's that's um, cool. sort of like saying that um, basically Hillary was interested in giving really good feedback to artists after school and I was too. And she was a good curator. I was a good curator. With our joint forces, we really thought about, well, what do people need? She had gone to RISD MFA. I mm-hmm. went to RISD MFA. We both were teaching. We both knew a lot, but we didn't want to burden anyone with like debt or this big commitment of grad school. So we figured, you know what? Like maybe we could just run a la carte classes that could feed the need of people who might want to go or might not want to go. Yeah. We'll get that experience like in a micro way, right? Yeah. You, this is one of my favorite things about your story, friend, is that, um, by the way, this is just so fun. Can I just pause and say like how fun it is to be talking to my twin on a podcast and, and also learning things about your life that, uh, you know, we can't know, we can't know everything and we can't know everybody's timeline exactly. But I have two light bulb moments that just happened for me in my brain when you were sharing this story. The first is how different your life would have been had you not been let go, you know, you had worked hard to get a master's in education and you were teaching at a school in New Jersey. And, and by all means, there was such a gift in that experience. I remember you telling me about your students and how advocate, uh, big of an advocate you were for them and learning. And it is a stable job to be a teacher. There's, it's one of the best professions in the world to give and to teach. And what I like about your story is that you didn't stop teaching because of, you know, layoffs. You continue to teach in a way that was creative for yourself. And I just want to pause because I've never once in my life realized, Kat, that that's exactly what happened to me too. I was high school. I was a high school English teacher for everyone listening in my early 20s. And I was one year away from getting tenure at one of the best schools in New Jersey. And I got let go because of budget cuts. And I remember my heart being broken. And then I thought, well, let's go travel the world. I packed my bags and I moved to Hong Kong and I began a teaching career in another country. And that began its own chapter. And so you think about these pivotal moments where sometimes you make a conscious decision to leave a relationship. (laughs) Sometimes you make a conscious decision to find a friend named Hillary and figure out how your needs and your skills can help those around you. And sometimes in life, you'd lose a job 
and and then you get to kind of like make lemonade out of lemons, if you will. So I just think it's a really cool moment that you you continue to teach. You just did it in a way that was more true to what you valued and more maybe sustainable for your energy, for your creativity, you know, and I, I just think that's amazing. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I actually like, you know, it was, I really loved teaching middle school. I learned a lot. I have great mm-hmm. stories. It really humbled me. It really made me feel like alerted to like the beautiful parts of art that after grad school felt like so right. I know, intellectual and just full of like whatever. And I just remember thinking like, oh, this is, yeah, making is important and how, what a privilege I have to make and what a privilege I have to go to my studio and read a good book and think about a painting. And then I'd go to this middle school in New Jersey and I'd teach kids that couldn't use their hands properly or, you know, in a functional way. And they had, you know, all these, um, you know, experiences that were so diverse and it really it gave me a sense of ground where I felt like no I am never gonna hold the pity card over my head and be all like oh I'm just an artist like I just thought what a gift what a privilege that I can go to my studio after work from nine to four every day and I can go there at five alone and I can make work about whatever I feel like because the next morning I'd wake up and I'd go teach a kid how to cut because he like maybe, you know, couldn't cut, use his hands or something, or he was nonverbal, or there was all these things that I was seeing on a day-to-day basis that made me really grounded in my gratitude, frankly, of just being able to participate and what a privilege it was. And so that actually really helped me during those years because it was hard. I was, you know, living in little apartments and studios and I was rebuilding my life. And so, but I actually didn't want, a lot of people were like, well, go get another job at a school. You could easily get one. Right. I just remember thinking, nope, time's up. And I just had a feeling that I was already ready for the next thing. And that I was another thing too, about our parents is that I, that I got to, that I didn't realize is that I also thought I didn't have an ego. I wasn't like embarrassed at 32 to go bartend for a living. Like I didn't care. Like people were like, but you just went to grad school twice. And now you're bartending. I'm like, yeah. And I'm making art. Cause that's always the number one goal mm-hmm. for when we were young, dad, at one point, like I think Pfizer and pharmacy emerged and he had a year off or something or he got like, you know, he just got a, he was an executive. So at his level, I think he got like a one-year buyout and he got to garden and build a rock wall. And dad also went and he caddied to just make extra money. And I remember thinking how big, mm-hmm. of it. and I always remember thinking like, that's a great example. And I remember mm-hmm. I, I was 32. I, look, it wasn't a big deal. All he did was go bartend, but I never was like, oh, I'm lost. Or like, it's, I'm not a real artist. Cause I was in this art world where people were driving trucks for a living and like doing anything to get by. So I thought it was great. Yeah. And I'm really glad I also had that father example that he was just like, yeah, no, I'm going to go like caddy. Cause like last year I was an executive, you know, flying around the world doing business meetings. And this year I'm going to go caddy. Cause like who literally cares. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that was really cool. And so I think that even tomorrow, if something fell apart, I just, I know how to work. I'd go work. So that's a really good example. It's good connection. Um, You talk about a few things actually with me. You've said this to me often. You um, just like if we're like, I'm like, let's hang out, Kat. Are you busy Tuesday? And you're like, no, I have to paint it. Painting and and art is always the number one thing. Tell tell us um, a little bit about that for you, like what it gives you, what it provides you and and how it helps you nourish everything else in your life. Yeah. I mean, it's always about making the work. Um, And you come to your own terms with that. Um, what's difficult I'll say about being an artist, something that I'm not saying people don't get, but people don't get is that you almost always have like two to three jobs. And so 
unless you have some kind of inherent, like, you know, special situation where you're able to fund everything. And so time is really, really scarce and important. And so I have to think about my work when I'm not making it. I have to be on the train drawing shoes on my iPhone. I have to be, you know, doodling during a lecture. I have to be figuring out ways to connect my life to my work. And so it's, I'm always an artist, right? Like it's not this thing. And this is a tangent, but I do this enough in class that it it warrants it to happen here. I don't use terms like full-time artist or professional artist. And there's a lot of reasons why, but it's not a job that you check in and you check out. It's a life. It's a calling. I am always thinking about the work. I'm always connecting dots. And even if I'm not producing nine to five every day, or if I don't make a million dollars from it, I'm an artist. And so I say that with a lot of intent because when I teach, when I mentor, it is a pervasive issue of confidence and security of one's worth if it is tied to full-time, professional, or money. And so if we want to break open the art world or help people understand how to be a part of it, particularly women and people of color, people that are often marginalized in history from all fields, but particularly art, we have to stop using these terms that basically just don't do any good because artists are always artists. And so I remember one time someone was like, oh, so like you're an artist, like on the side and then like you teach. And I was like, I I actually just, no. So that's not how it works, but um, I do have a job um, and it is teaching. And and I think like, I'm just trying to get to the point that it's my whole person. And so it is really important to me. And I trust it now in a way that I don't worry anymore if I have two weeks where I can't be in the studio because I've got life. Um, it's, it's a way of transforming one's experience. And so sometimes it results in paintings and sometimes it looks like trash sculptures or writing. Um, and so- it, making and being alone is my is one of my greatest joys, and it need not be quantified or su- substantiated by a show or a sale at this point. It's lovely that those things happen, but of all of the best moments of my life, being alone is one of them, making my work. And the work all looks different. You know, every year or two, you change and you, you grow and you, you go back and you collaborate with a former self, but I'm I'm just in love with making work, and that is the reward of everything I do. Um, being alone and like tinkering and building and messing up. Yeah. So we, one thing I want to ask you, cause I've seen your art, obviously not every single piece, but I've seen your art through the years, like through literally college, post-college MFA twenties and thirties. I'm curious just as you look back at your art, um, cause it is the central piece to expression and your way of being in the world. Like what, what do you think of your evolution? If, if I don't know if that's a fair question, but like, as you look at your art through the years, what, what are some trends you're seeing, ideas you're exploring? You talk often about the characters in your work. You know, there was, there was a couple of years we had a few different characters that were always there. And these characters were like objects and images. Um, can you share a little bit of just about, as you look back on your body of work, just what you notice and what you've experienced? Well, I think it's really normal for people to think that progress is linear and that you, you, you infinitely get better in all of the things you do. Um, and so that's, that's one thing that right away I'm learning that it's really important to go back to former ideas or older ideas in air quotes and like, think about what, what they were. And I think in a lot of ways, there's a lot of change over the years. And then a lot of ways it's not, um, my work is highly reactive to my, my whole, uh, my person, which is to say like the way I am operating in the world. And this is stuff I could have never realized until 
you put in a good 15 years of solid work. Um, I've always been drawn to painting and drawing. I love painting and drawing. I use a myriad of tools, airbrush, pencil, crayon, uh, wax crayon, oil stick, acrylic paint, oil paint, anything I can get my hands on. I've learned to not have a hierarchy of materials, but to use materials that I need, that I crave, that I want to touch, that I want to like use to make a painting or a drawing. Um, I've had some moments of my life where I couldn't deal with the figure. I couldn't deal with people, any indication of a person, be it a sneaker, a shoe, a sock, a face. Those were certain years, 2016 to maybe 2020. Couldn't deal with it. Just could not access an individual being represented. So I, I dove into other things like animals and art history and glyphs, a sense of schematic abstract space. In my 20s, the work that no one ever saw because I wasn't showing or doing as much was actually highly representational, autobiographical, and um, and kind of figurative. And so in a lot of ways, I'm kind of coming back to that after a few years of pushing those things away. Um, but, um, you know, I, I see painting and drawing as a transformative process of the way that I see the world. Um, so how it changes, changes with me. Um, and I think being open to that is, is like one of the hardest things. And then figuring out ways to position you and your work in, in the large art history canon of which you are tiny and know that you are collaborating with the past and that at your best, you are going to be contributing to an art history future um, that is reflective of the contemporary lens you experience, your person, uh, the idiosyncratic ways you construct form, shape, and color. And that is the challenge, is how to get all of those things, if possible, in any kind of balance, mm -hmm. your work, which is just to say, to be very, very um, aware of the past, but not too aware, to be very open to being vulnerable and messing up and showing work that is scary or has something to lose, and um, and elevating that to the highest level visually that you can. Yeah. One of the things I've always said to you, Kat, that I feel still is that as a as an artist, as an artist who creates and like, that you have a relationship with self-expression and effectively documenting your life's journey in a way that not everyone does. Now, again, everyone can be an artist. We know that. Like I could pick up and paint every day for the rest of my life, not questioning that. But this is something that like, this is your being, this is how you show up and how you sort of work through feelings and loss and grief and issues. And there was years where you couldn't represent a person on a painting like that's interesting I didn't know that right and so you can kind of look back and begin to see your own personal spiritual if you will evolution through your art and I said this once too we were having dinner and I was like I, I within my realm of coaching and mostly all my life has been around coaching people from nutrition to mindfulness to now leadership like I can see an evolution but it's not a visual one it's not one that I can look back and say like wow I've built a body of work I have to go through memories and experiences so I've always felt I don't know if jealous is the word, but really happy for you that <laughs> you have this physical thing you can pick up and do every day. Whereas my work is a bit more inward and sort of like um, introspective and coaching in that way. But I, I think it's really beautiful what you said. And there is a phrase in here that I'll highlight later in their notes, but that your art changes as your life changes. And if you're in constant relationship, constant communication with yourself, the art will always evolve. And I think that's a, it's a gift and it's a beautiful thing to keep, you know, like doing, I mean, what a cool thing to do on planet earth, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it, well, it's humbling because it's a shared experience by millions of people from the beginning of time. Um, mm -hmm. 
I think that it's, it teaches me a lot. Being an artist teaches me a lot. It teaches me to look closer. It teaches me to work harder. It teaches me to be more sen- sensitive, more empathetic. Mm-hmm. Uh, also to, to, to loosen my grip on my, my judgments, basically about a lot of things. But, um, you know, I think that's normal actually, as you, hopefully as you grow older, you also are like, well, I don't really know if I know that. Um, and maybe, maybe also just great that that person makes the art, you know, like mm-hmm. it doesn't matter if it's something you like. And also you learn a lot from the things you don't like. Yeah. The things you like. I mean, that's just how it is. If you're open. Yeah. If you're open to it is a big thing. I remember dad saying in the last many years of his life, you know, because of his neurological decline, there were things he literally didn't know anymore, but he would often, we would ask him questions and he would just say like, I can't know. And I can't know. And there was something really profound about that. Like I can't know. And I found um, that some of the most interesting things he said were towards the end of his life. And that what you just said sort of hit on that for me. Um, I want to transition to that. You know, you started with the Crick Club um, with Hillary and you co-founded this incredible community that is still ongoing. I think you're at what, how many years now has it been up and running? So six, but um, I think this fall, it'll be the full seven. If you like, yeah. So seven years that New York City Crick Club has existed and has, has changed quite a bit, but so I want you to tell us a little bit, you said earlier, a little bit about the Crick Club and its origin, which is a cool story, a very scrappy, authentic story. Um, tell us a little bit about the Crick Club, but also you just started a new offering for your community called um, the Canopy Program. So just tell us a little bit about that and and why it's important to you. You had created a scholarship in memory and honor of our dad, and I'd just love for you to share more about that. Yeah, thanks. Well, you know, the, the New York City Crick Club, the name itself sounds like a Crick Club. And Hillary and I were actually pretty adamant about this idea of it being focused on one thing, the one thing we both felt really great about, which was giving critique and advice. So we isolated our skill set early on. We also wanted it not to be a school. We didn't want the word school in it. We didn't want it to feel like it was exclusive. We wanted it to be casual in nature. So people felt like more inclined to participate because I don't know, maybe it didn't feel so judgy or something. Um, ironically, though, what's changed about it is that it's just become more comprehensive. Um, as the program has grown since 2020, we went from six classes online to 14 and then to 23 at one point. And now we're, we're back down to a good average of 15 to 18 a semester. Um, the classes expanded as the community expanded and as our global reach became more, more clear. And so now we have artists in the classes from Pakistan to um, Abu Dhabi to uh, Hong Kong, Vancouver, LA, everywhere in between, uh, Montreal. And, and so I think what we started to realize is that we need to offer more things. So we always kept with our classes, which were giving great feedback about the work that people were actively doing. And we grew into classes that were more assignment-based, more about writing, more about discussing the work in a seminar reading books together and discussing Susan Sontag or other great artists in history and writers. And so it became kind of like a school, like that we offered things that people needed, you know? So sometimes as a leader, entrepreneur, educator, basically you have to be really open to being flexible and to adding to what is needed. And so I kept hearing things like, I I need to know how to get more exhibitions or how do I even make my CV look good or something like this. So we built classes that were about these topics for people. 
Um, and we started to hire people to do that because we couldn't do it all ourselves. Um, and in the last year, I made a really big change in the program, which I'm really, really proud of, which is that I built the Canopy program, um, which is a one-year mentorship, essentially like a one-year program. Um, it's application-based. So to get in itself is quite difficult. Um, we saw a ton, a ton of applications from around the world. Um, and it's a one-year uh, program, which culminates in a group show in New York City um, at the end of the third term. Cool. Um, there's usually 10 to 12 artists in the class each, so it's really intimate. And it's led by um, a, a range of amazing faculty and, um, and artists. And so um, this program is great because it also allows for consistency with mentorship, with feedback and peer dialogue. And then it also allows people to be accountable in a different way than an a la carte class can offer. And so knowing that you have a spring, summer and fall of like intense visiting critics, professional practices, essays to read and digest, group work, individual critiques and assignments, that's pretty comprehensive. And I thought I'm gonna give people kind of everything we've been doing for six years, but in one year, in one consistent program mm -hmm. with 10 peers that they're going to become really, really close with. And the thing about giving advice and feedback is, is that you have to have trust. And it's hard to build that trust in a six to nine week term. It's not impossible, but it's definitely easier to build a little bit incrementally over time and then really get into an hour long discussion of someone's work in the fall. Mm -hmm. Already have all this information about their person, their research, the things they're worried about, their, their, their skills. Um, and so that is a huge part of it, that consistency and that intimacy. Um, but at, I think the highest level, um, that we can offer that I can offer. And also in the most ethical way, in the most inclusive way, offering scholarships to people in need always, um, I built a scholarship after our father, the James Bernard Haggerty scholarship of commitment and service, where I gave one member of each cohort, a $3,000 scholarship. Um, myself and said, you know, I want you to be a part of this program because you've shown commitment and service to others, which is something our dad did. And so that will always happen in the program. And I'll give that to the, every cohort until forever, um, no matter how many I run. And, and additionally, what, what, what I just want to say is really important and different about this because it costs money to run programs. You have to hire people, you have to pay people ethically. And not only ethically, but competitively and higher than college wage, which obviously is not very high in a lot of cases. Um, but we also never turn anyone away. If someone needs a payment plan or a scholarship ranging from 20% to 40% to 60, I have never once turned a person away. And that kind of investment in the culture is difficult. That is actually the hardest part about the program along with building curriculum and seeing a larger vision. But I refuse to make sure, I refuse to have it be a program where you can only go if you can afford it. And I have loans. A lot of people have loans and I pay those checks every month. And I think to myself, what would my life be like if I didn't have a $600 loan payment every month? And, and is it possible to build a world for people where they can enter the art world at the highest level, you know, sincerely rigorous level that is, and not have that debt. And then have more space for their investment and their work and their their person mm. and that is part of it as much as anything else is at this point and I'm really determined to keep it that way and I'm really proud of that because that actually is one of the things that makes it very different 
is that I will sacrifice or I will figure out ways to make sure that everyone else can be a part of a world that took me a long time to enter, cost me a lot still. And I think there's ways to reconfigure the system uh, without the institutional drag that can happen. And I think we're doing it. Um, bravo. I love the Canopy program. Huge fan of the Crick Club. Um, I think that it is one of the coolest things you've done because again, you're solving for the thing you didn't have. You're giving the world something that is not, that is democratized. It is not elitist. It is for people who can come in and get support who maybe couldn't get the MFA or who got the MFA 20 years ago and don't have a community. Like you, you, you told me some stories of some people who live alone and live with their parents or their caretakers and they don't have anybody to connect with in the art world. And you've actually like, these courses have given people a chance to show up on a screen and like, feel like they're part of a, the pulse of a community, which is talk about currency. I mean, that is invaluable. I mean, that's what keeps people going, you know, especially in the art world, you know? And I think that's what keeps me going is like, yeah. I, think I used to think I know people, I knew people. I think I used to think I was a good artist in this way, or that I used to be like, I think I used to be like, well, I'm a New York artist. And like, yeah. but I was just young and I was excited. Right. And now I'm like, oh man, who cares? I mean, the fact that I have in-person classes, by the way, in-person at, at our Brooklyn studio, which in itself is very difficult to do, to have rent. And I have virtual classes globally that allow people access to critics from all over the world, but a lot of them are in New York, that they have that access, that in the middle of America, there is culture. In small towns, there is culture. In the suburbs, there is culture. And this idea that you have to be an elite like city or perhaps program is it's partly true. There are some truths to proximity and education, but I'm really interested in how this all can be a little bit more cohesive and generative. And I love self-taught artists. I love people that have gone to grad school. And when you go to grad school, although it's a terminal degree, like you are not equipped to understand how to function for 40 more years alone in a studio. No other profession works that way. That like you go to a box and you make your paintings alone and you think that like, that's it. You've got an MFA from a school. That's not it. I mean, that's a part of it, but I'm really compassionate also towards self-taught artists. And I love that there are people that have like a psychology degree in our program or an economics degree. They mm -hmm. offer voice. And so that's something that I think is becoming more popular in general, but something that I really learned from. Um, and it breaks down the hierarchies of the art world, which are incredibly classist. Yeah. Keep breaking them down, friend. I'm proud of you. I have, yes, I have a few more questions before we go to rapid fire. Um, and by the way, at any point, since this is a unique, fun podcast, you can ask me any questions too. No pressure. Um, uh, one of the things I want to know right now, we've hinted at it along the way in your story today, is just what are you unlearning? What are you currently rumbling with? What, do you, what are you rewriting the playbook on these days? Um. I think it's like, I am unlearning that things need to be difficult to be good. <laughs> like the, the path of least resistance is great. <laughs> like uh, that you don't have to make things so complicated or difficult. Um, and that although one can endure a lot and be have a monument to work ethic, one does not need to do all of that. And I think that is important. Um, I'm also learning to to try to respond slower in general. To anyone. Um, and I'm also trying to get away from this idea that I can be everything for everyone. And, and, and I can't do it all anymore. And I think for a long time, I was very, very adamant about like, nothing's going to stop me. I can't do it all. And I've been humbled in the last year. I just can't, I'm just, 
I've hit a wall of what I want to be for people and what I can be for myself. And I need to take more care of myself and have more time to myself and not feel like I have to answer everyone's email or constant text or DM. And I get a lot and that's part of my job and I love it, but I'm starting to just be like, you know, people can wait in general for me to respond. And that's like, that's actually just about learning how to put myself first is, is what it is. It doesn't mean I don't care. Um, but, you know, I think patience is, is a huge part of it and protection protecting oneself um i i've also unlearned that people are gonna like me i i'm in a position where it's easy to have opinions about me at this point and i i just i just don't care i'm gonna take care of myself and my family and my world that i love and i know that in that experience i am going to have people that don't like it or love what i do and i don't think it's that many but i'm just aware of it and i'm becoming less attached to that worry and just oh yeah. well, I have to take care of myself. So, you know, you do you and yeah, for sure. But I, I think I'm proud of that because I've always been someone that really wants to be liked for whatever reason, but I, maybe a lot, everyone feels that way, yeah. but it can limit you if you, if you don't um, have the bravery to just be like, well, oh, well, you know, yeah. trying to figure out that, but that, that's a that, that's a really good list there for you on learning wise, but also like you said, the the sense of like not everyone's gonna like me. Like, it may sound really obvious, but like that is part of the human experience from a very young age: wanting approval, wanting love, wanting belonging. I mean, that's our primal way of existing on the planet. And when we don't feel we have it, man, we we have a fear react reaction. You know, that's normal. But Brene Brown said something once that really stuck with me. You know, you have done something with your career, and and so so have I in many ways from a very young age put yourself out there, not just like to pursue a career, but you've like started a website, you've started things that are literally like up for critique, <laughs> no pun intended here with your company. But Brene Brown was like, you know, if you're not in the arena, like if you're not in the arena of creating and putting out and creating and putting out, like if you're not actually doing that, like you don't actually get a say, you don't actually get to critique me. <laughs> like, cause the, the courage it takes to create a website and say, here world, here's what I offer. Here's the promise I think I can deliver or the idea I have. That takes a lot of courage and vulnerability that most people who are not in the arena, so to speak, do not understand. And I think that there's something oh. to be said about being an entrepreneur and putting stuff out there. Like it is, and, and I think I actually just got off a call with a client. We're talking about professional grief, like a project that doesn't go through or a decade year long of toiling with a boss and how much professional grief and professional like let's say criticism can really impact someone. But I, I just think again, to anyone listening, like the, the criticism I've heard in my life or feedback, I mean, I don't know. First of all, I was growing up. I didn't know left from right. I was just trying to figure out what being an adult was. But also like, if you're not in the arena of creating a course and offering, like I kind of like don't want to hear it. <laughs> like like yeah. if, if, it's, if it's generative, I'll take the feedback. But if it's not generative, then- buy like I can I have I'm gonna fumble and we're gonna make mistakes and like let's roll with that you know it's it's so difficult and I have there are a lot of people doing things that I am doing and that Hillary and I built right yeah. like alone and, and Hillary still teaches for the program whenever she wants um and is focusing on her baby and her art and you know lives in Massachusetts and but we we know that like there have been other people that do things similar to us but it is really, really hard to do and to do over time and to do well and to do ethically and to do as yeah. determined as you can. And it takes so much more brain space than people might understand. And 
doing things the right way and like with a lot of integrity is is a completely different ball game um and it's really really difficult to do and yeah. it does a lot of my brain space which i'm trying to actually figure out ways for it not to because i have to focus on myself and my work yeah. just but i agree with you i think you know and one of the things that i've unlearned over time is like it's like if someone cares enough to do a thing like my only opinion is like great good for you i just like I'm so done with being like, well, they don't know what they're doing. I'm just like, that sentence should just be omitted. It's like, great. Like, let them learn and figure it out. Like, fantastic. Whether yeah. it's yeah. education or they're not a real this. I'm like, great. Like, that's insane. Like, what are you basing your judgments off? Yeah, you know? it's boring. It's actually just uninteresting. It's a boring conversation. Like, they shouldn't be doing this. They don't know enough. It's like, come on now. Like, it's boring. Um, tell us what you think if you were to define unlearning, what would you say it is? Like, how would you define it or think about the concept of unlearning? I think it's probably, if I can think about it in the simplest way, is loosening, loosening one's grip on, on, on perception or on functioning. I mean, I think it's like, it doesn't have to be that way. Um, just loosening the grip, loosening, like the, the, the tooth chomped into an idea, like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. no, maybe not. And, and I think, people that are impulsive and fast thinkers have a harder time because, you know, you want to just contribute and say what you think. But I, I think it's loosening one's grip. Um, I like that. I like that language. What are, what are you unlearning currently in your life? <laughs> oh, damn near everything always. <laughs> um, I think I'm unlearning that, um, that I, I can never, ever, ever ignore my body. When I have a reaction to something like relationally work-wise, it's always intelligent. Like if my body freezes up and tenses up, it just means that I need to start asking some questions. And like, I can rationalize to the moon and back. I'm very good at that. I can rationalize the benefit of the doubt. I can talk about keeping an open mind, but if my body is in fight or flight, or if I feel like, I don't know, just anxious or nervous, that's the data I have to kind of go with and not have that determine my life, but I get to ask questions and be like, what am I afraid of? What am I trying to protect? Like what's going on with me right now? And I think that I talk about this a lot in my work, but for years and years as athletes and as hardworking people forging a path forward, we did learn how to, in many ways, abandon ourselves for the greater good, for the people, for the community, for appeasing others. And I think that I feel like I'm unlearning that the biggest way for me to manage my mind and my body is to say the hard thing. Like that's what I'm unlearning to listen to my body and to say the hard thing. Cause every time I say the hard thing, even if I say, and I can say it kindly, I can say it clearly with candor. I feel like a, a whole mountain has been moving from my shoulder and I get to feel free and liberated again. And I think that that's it for me. Like that's, that's the key to feeling alive and expansive and big in this world is actually just listening to my body and saying the hard thing. Um, that could be saying it to myself or saying it to whoever needs to be, you know, a uh, part of that conversation, but that's what I'm unlearning. That's good. That's, that's my shift move these days. I went for a run this morning in the park and I, um, I've been trying to get in the habit of doing that in the mornings instead of looking at my computer. And I think I'm also like trying to figure out ways to unlearn like productivity and, perceptions of commitment I think in work mm -hmm. when you run a project and then you make art basically every day all day for shows and then you do teach classes and you have these other responsibilities there you feel like you are um 
Like you have to be on all the time. And I think one thing I was really good about in my twenties was I ran all the time and I ran marathons and that was like a different level of time and commitment. I'm not going to do anymore. Right. But I think for a few years I I dropped it because I was like, well, I'm just so professionally focused and it got me really far, I think in some ways, but lately I just moved to a park and I'm just like, yeah, I'm going to go running every morning and take care of my body first. And like, I think I'll just be better at everything else. And I'm like, these emails can wait. My yeah. responses can wait. They, everyone can wait until 10 o'clock in the morning until I have gone for a jog. And I think like, maybe that's, that's where I'm at too. That's a good place to be. It's a great place to be. All right, friend, you ready for some rapid fire questions? Sure. Here we go. Um, what book are you reading right now? I am not reading a book. No, I started a book a month ago. Um, but I'm 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 reading more essays for for work and stuff like that. So cool. Um, favorite song as of this week or song that comes to mind? Oh my God, I'm the worst at these things. Oh man, okay. I've been playing this like soundtrack from the White Lotus, like on repeat. It's okay. Great. We're getting the 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 insider view of Kat's uh, music and White movie Lotus. choice. Okay. okay, so the book I've been reading is called Almost a Poet. And it's by Peter Sheldahl's daughter, who's also a writer. And Peter Sheldahl was a great critic and writer for The New Yorker and lots of different publications. So I'm reading it almost a poet slowly at night. And I am listening to the White Lotus soundtrack. (laughs) I'm going to put that in the show notes for everybody so we know both things. You'll know why that's funny. But anyway, it's just a good soundtrack. It's got a lot of Italian music in it, a lot of techno. It's great. Cool. Um, Favorite cat of yours? Pimento, Lou, or Josie? I cannot. That's not fair. But I mean, like, Pimento wins. I mean, he's still my cat, even though he's having a cat vacation with mom forever. It's a bit of a debate. We'll see what mom thinks about that. But um, I'm the second mom. I'm like the great aunt or something at this point. But yeah. If you were an animal, what animal would you be? Like, what animal best represents your energy? Oh, man. It depends. Um, I think, like, I don't know. I was looking at a bird today in the park. Maybe like a, maybe like a, yeah, maybe a bird. Okay. Um, Mountains or the ocean when you travel? The ocean. When you go on a hike or you go outside, what are some favorite snacks you bring with you? I do not bring snacks on when I go outside, but like, I guess (laughs) if I'm hiking, I mean like. Yeah, I don't know. Food you like to eat, snacks you like to eat on the go. Oh, okay. That's a different question. But yes, um, maybe like, well, uh, like plantain chips or fruit or almonds, um, maybe dates if I'm going for a long run. Dates are really good for like um, sugars and all of that stuff. Well, if you're really running a long way or something like that. Cool. Most, I don't know if this is a fair question, but you can edit it however you like, but most meaningful piece of art you've ever made, the one that is like, most meaningful for you or you feel most connected to maybe? Uh, That's kind of hard and not, I've made so much, but I think, um, I think there, I think I'm working on a series of paintings right now that 
I think will be in a show in May in New York. Um, and they are a series of paintings about the structure that dad built in the bathroom of his, his and mom's bathroom, that's the cabinets. And I'm, I'm repainting it um, a lot of times, the exact same structure and the exact same form and using repetition and form as a way to honor um, somebody, but also give it many different lives or iterations with color. So the series that I'm working on right now might, might be the most meaningful with that in mind. Cool. Is there an up and coming artist on the scene that we could all pay attention to or just look out to support? I mean, I think everyone should love Leave Onward's work. That's right. Like, for sure. Um, I have a lot of favorite artists, but that list would be really long. Um, I think some of the people I work with in Crit Club are just like phenomenal artists. I just love their art. I, I learn from them. I think they're fabulous. Um, but uh, yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, Leave Onward's always my go-to. Everyone just go look at her work. She's based yeah. in LA. I'll, I'll put her in the show notes. Um, last couple of questions. Uh, what advice do you have to young artists or artists out there who uh, maybe aren't young, but they're, they're artists? Find something you're really interested in and do it and learn from it and let it grow and surround yourself with people that support you and that are kind to you in your pursuit of being creative, whatever that means. Um, and I think... I think being alone is important and learning how to be okay alone is also really important. So surround yourself with good people that will challenge you, but not put you down, learn how to be alone in your own way. And, um, I think, I think it's, it is about like attrition. It's just about staying the course. It's just about making the work. Um, all the other stuff is distracting and always a letdown. Oh, and the last thing I'll say is don't let the goalposts move. That's the most important thing I can say. The goalposts are the things in life where you're like, when I get this thing, I think I'll be a good artist or I'll be super proud. If I get a gallery, I'll be really good. If I get a show, I'll be really good. If this show sells, I'll be really good. And those are the goalposts that our culture and our world and our educational system and, and the market make us feel like our indicators. And the most that you can do as an artist is control if those move all the time. So if you get a show, be really excited you have a show. If you sell a painting, be really puffed up and proud that you sold a painting. And if you didn't, be really proud that you made the painting or the object. So if you can let the goalposts stay still and be excited that you're doing what you're doing, you're going to be so much happier. Your work is going to be so much more loved and lighter, and you'll stay the course much longer. Mm. So do not let the goalposts move constantly based off of everyone else, only yourself. Yes. Celebrate the wins. It's a big deal. Um, last question. Most important question. This is controversial. Is a hot dog a sandwich? Oh, this is a great question, but I think that yes, technically it is because it is some kind of meat or product or thing in between two slices of bread. And so it's a sandwich, even though, you know, yeah, it, it's a big debate. I mean, we're going to, we're going to collect answers from hundreds of people. And the sandwich or is, what do you, I, I technically think it's a sandwich. Um, I do. I think that it has two pieces of bread, has some sort of meat. And then it also has 
like condiments and stuff. But then I think a hamburger is not a sandwich. It's a hamburger. It's like its own body of something. I don't well, know. If you go to a restaurant and you look under the menu and it says salad sandwiches, hamburgers are totally on that list. It's fair. It's fair. Yeah. We're going to have to start a poll and figure this out because it's a big deal. I definitely think that they're a sandwich. It's keeping me up at night, basically. Well, last question. We we came across this question the other day at dinner. Is um, cereal soup? No, absolutely not. (laughs) I, I like a cereal once in a while and I love a soup, but they're just not the same thing. A soup is something, even if it's not cooked, because gazpacho could be cold. Cereal is a dried, sweetened food product put into milk. I just feel like that. It's almost like a pastry and milk or something, but it's not a soup. That's true. I think the distinction with cereal and soup is that soup is made like all in one pot coming together. And cereal is just like some sort of dried sugar product basically put into milk. So they're actually, they're not the same, but it is a good question to consider. Yeah. The way you asked us that, that was funny. Yeah. Kat, um, thanks for coming on the podcast, friend. I'm really proud of you. Uh, You've done some incredible work and I learned a few things about your life and your journey and what, what makes you tick today in, in ways that maybe I hadn't understood before. And, um, I hope you keep doing the work you do. And now that you're a little closer to me in Brooklyn, let's have, let's have a run in the park and not answer emails till 10 AM. Okay. No, that's definitely not. And yes, I'm also proud of you and very happy for you. And I think you are incredible. Um, and I'm always very confident that you will land on your feet, like a little cat who can never be told that they're not going to do what they want. So I'm, I think that that's very difficult to do, um, to make your own way the way you want it. And to restart your life many different ways and many different times. So it can't be, but you're awesome. And we'll go for a birthday run next week. That's right. Well, actually the day this is released is our birthday, but cats land on our feet. That's our biggest takeaway from today. Um, Love you, Kat. And uh, thanks for being a part of this. Thank you. Hey friends. Thanks for listening to the School of Unlearning podcast. You can follow us on Spotify and iTunes. Be sure to check out the show notes, complete with links and insight you won't want to miss. If you enjoyed this episode, take one minute to rate, review, and share this podcast. Because our learning and unlearning never ends, and we don't have to do it alone.